This episode is brought to you by Portland Distro. If you like underground music, movies, and more, go to portlanddistro.com for licensed merch, vinyl, CDs, and more. Plug in the discount code 10OFF, T-E-N-O-F-F, for a 10% discount at portlanddistro.com. I had to explain to Marty what the metapsychotic was. This is going to happen again. You know what's happened before? Both. Go on. It's fantasy enactment, ritual, fetishization, iconography. This is his vision. Her body is a paraphilic love map. How's that? An attachment of physical lust to fantasies and practices forbidden by society. You get that from one of your books? I did. Welcome, everyone, to Everything Went Black. This is a Long Shadows special that is going to air on the normal stream. And uh, this will be part one of a two-part episode dealing with the long-awaited True Detective Season 1. And uh, we've been talking about doing this for a while. I know some of you guys out there have been interested in us covering it based on the other things that we've talked about, either on Long Shadows or just in Ralph and Mind discussions that we have on the other stuff that we're doing. So we're finally jumping into it. So part one is going to be um, an overview, just going back to season one, talking about the central themes and our thoughts on it. Part two, which will be available only on Patreon, since Long Shadows, up until this point primarily, has been an exclusive Patreon show that we've been doing over there. So uh, part two is going to be more of a deep dive. We have a thesis that we're going to to, uh, discuss, go into more of the philosophical elements and literary elements of the show. And uh, that's basically it. So we got part one, part two. If you're on Patreon right now, you're getting part one and part two at the same time. And if you're uh, a listener of the regular stream, if you want to join Patreon for as little as $1 a month, you get access to all of the bonus content for $5 a month. You get 
access to the bonus content, plus early access to regular episodes. And then you can also become a sponsor for $25 a month. So, Ralph, how's everything going, man? It's been a busy uh, couple of weeks for you. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, it's good to be back. It's good to finally be doing this. I mean, like you said, we've talked about it for a long time, and people were anticipating it. Um, it was fun, like, re-watching it. But, um, yeah, like I said, it took some time. I, uh, I had summer vacation, but uh, the vacation was stuffed and full. So... Yeah, playing shows with Ulfa, hanging out and working. and uh, But yeah, aside from that, uh, school started again. Um, so far, I'm okay. Yeah, like not, not bad, not good, but it's okay. I'm still living here. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. Every, everything's uh, going well. Life is good. And uh, just, you know, rocking and rolling, man. Waiting to the autumn the mightiest season of the year to, to approach. So, yeah, it's going well. It's, isn't it crazy that it's already mid-August again? So that means, like, Halloween is, like, in two months. I can't wait, dude. I hate the summer, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, like, today, like I told you before we, like, started recording, uh, uh, Petrus, the, the god of the weather, like, decided, hey, let's make this a four-dimensional experience because uh, right now, uh, we're like stuck in a wave of heat and humidity and rain right now. So I see fog outside uh, on on like on the place before my apartment, and I feel like in the bayou where this whole fucking great show that we're going to talk about is set and is such an integral part of the atmosphere of the show. Oh, definitely. Uh, before we get going, I just want to mention the other horsemen of the podcasting apocalypse. Of course, we have Brandon Legion's Horror Wolf 666, Jackie Smith, Into the Necrosphere. And uh, recently, Ralph, you appeared on that show. And uh, that was pretty awesome. Wednesday, of course, is Everything Went Black. That's midweek. The uh, you know kind of sketchbook variety show of uh, podcasts. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, get, you, don't, you don't know what you're going to get week to week on everything went black. So that's pretty cool. You know, uh, I return with uh, Mike Scandato and Jeff Kashid for Necromaniacs. We have Break the Apocalypse to round out the week. On Sundays, the Lord's Day, Carl Hikaro brings us Soul Knox. And I'd also like to invite into the fold Cheyenne of Trivax with Iblis Manifestations. And that's a pretty solid week of uh, media you have there. Is there still a day open, or is it like, is everything covered? I think Saturday is still open, right? Saturday is a day off. You got to take a day off every now and then. Hey, yeah. So maybe I should I should do like a, like a mini series Saturday Sadness or something. Yeah. Where hey, I talk sure. like talk talk about depressing stuff for the people that enjoy the sun, like you always recommend. If you like go outside and enjoy the day and still want to have some depressing stuff, I'll talk about sadness. Ralph's Saturday sadness sounds like a successful, sounds like a successful sensation. Wow. That's uh, what's that called? <laughs> Alliteration? I believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. On, on, on fire right now. <laughs> <laughs> so true detective season one aired, January 12th through March 9th in 2014. So it's almost 10 years ago this show came out. Uh, written by Nick Pizzolatto, 
and primarily directed by uh, Carrie Fukunaga. And uh, that's that's pretty much uh, the creative core of the show. And uh, takes place in Louisiana. And there are three distinct time periods that all converge into the final episode. The narrative takes place, uh, starts, well, it doesn't start, but the chronological start of the story is 1995. It's uh, concerning the murder of Dora Lang. 2002, which is like the post-Dora Lang murder section, and then the present is 2012. So that that's uh, another interesting aspect of the show, which carried on, I believe, throughout the other two seasons, this sort of uh, multi-dimensional timeline thing that, that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it's funny that... Uh, I, I like I wanted to re rewatch the second and third season and like I, I tried to re- read something about it before doing it and then it was like oh damn I forgot this do you remember that in the third season that there's references to season one yes 100 percent yeah I do yeah yeah it's like uh, because there's a new new season of Fargo coming out which a lot of people consider also like a fantastic show and uh, it also references each like the other seasons even though if they're not like they're playing in the same universe even though if they're not connected and like that's something where they dropped the ball on the second one but uh, now there, there's a fourth season coming out so we'll see how that goes yeah the thing with the fourth season is that uh, I don't think Nick Pizzolatto is involved in this at all I think that it's yeah. it's almost like a fan fiction version of True Detective, where uh, Issa Lopez, uh, who, you know, she um, Tigers are not afraid. She directed that Mexican uh, filmmaker. Mm-hmm. She's uh, she's at the helm on this, so you know it's it's not connected to Nick Nick Pizzolatto in any way. So, um, but I, I am like um, I'm relatively optimistic about a season four. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it could be like uh, these, there's so much fan fiction when it comes to Lovecraft and some of the coolest stories that are read in that universe were, weren't actually written by H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I also felt the same thing too. And that, that kind of ties into what I'm, my, my, some of my thoughts, which we're going to talk about in part two about this show with respect to Robert Chambers. So that, that's interesting yes. actually. So Pizzolatto is primarily a, a, a novelist and short story writer before getting into true detective screenwriting. And um, I, after watching the first season, I actually went back and I read some of his writ, you know, writing. You know, there's a mm-hmm. short story collection called Between Here and the Yellow Sea, which is not all crime genre fiction. There's other just sort of, you know, literature stories in there about life and things. And the the novel Galveston, which is has has also that has also been adapted into a film with uh, Ben Foster starring in it. And uh, anyone out there who enjoys True Detective, I highly recommend checking out some of his writing because it's uh, different, but very much in the same voice. You know what I mean? Yeah, sounds good. So I guess we'll run through the main cast. Yes. on this before we get into some of the meat of this thing. So the main characters in this, so we have Matthew Matthew McConaughey as Detective Rustin Cole, Woody Harrelson as Detective Marty Hart, 
Michelle Monaghan as Maggie Hart, his wife. Michael Potts as Detective Maynell Gilbao and Tori Kittles as Detective Thomas Papagna. And they're, they're uh, significant because they're, um, they play kind of a big role in the film. But for most of the series, they're almost uh, supporting characters, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah, but pushing like the narrative and like the way that the the nonlinear time structure of the show works, they're they're pretty much uh, the ones controlling this time. So because it's always taking them back. Yeah, yeah, they're they're kind of directing the story forward. You know, they're they're like the uh, the the mechanism in which the narrative is moved forward because they're per- performing an interview. And that's essentially how the narrative of this uh, this whole thing moves. Yes. I got a couple, couple other people here I want to mention that are just interesting characters. We have uh, Shea Wigan as uh, Joel Th- uh, Theria Theria who's um you know this preacher, and he com- he plays a part in this thing too. Glenn Fleischer as Errol Childress, one of the creepiest uh, villains. <laughs> <laughs> you know, come across in a while. Charles Halford as Reggie Ledoux, who um, looks like a dude that uh, is like a, a buzz oven bass player or something like that. <laughs> he looks like one of the guys who played in buzz oven over the years. <laughs> uh, Olafur, Olafur Dari Olofsson as DeWall Ledoux. And uh, that's kind of like the main... You know, there's uh, you know some other characters. There's a lot of a lot of cast in this thing, but those are the yeah. main players, I think. Two uh, two notes on this. First off, uh, Glenn Fleischer, and uh, it's funny because like I mean, he he we will talk about him. He's the bad guy pretty much, and uh, but Fleischer is the German word for like a butcher. Yeah, because Fleisch Fleisch, Fleisch. is meat. meat. Yeah, so like he, he a very suiting name. And uh, one of my favorite things in this whole show, and I rewatched it, is hearing Rustin Cole say the name Reggie Ledoux. Reggie Ledoux. <laughs> Dude, there's almost two versions of Rust in this. You know what I mean? There's, there's like the kind of like, you know, down and out version of him, you know, or a little, little more boozy, you know? And then there's yeah. like the, uh, the laced up, like wild man version that happens when he's uh, a detective, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things. I mean, we will get into this in the second episode about like these mirror images and people are being different, like having two sides to each other. And we will discuss if like Marty and Rust are kind of like the same or like diametrically opposed, but the same at the same time. And this is like a lot of this happens in the show that people pretty much change their characters into their opponents or like the thing that they're not yeah interesting i'm I'm interested to start that discussion yeah all right so starting off episode one's called the long bright dark and this is where we get introduced to these guys in the present because it starts off in 2012 and uh there's an interview we got two these two detectives and uh that's where we meet marty and rust for the first time except it's more, uh, let's say, they're, they're two men that are more in the twilight of their life. You know what I mean? They're retired. Marty's retired. Rust is obviously no longer a police officer, <laughs> as we see him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, like I said, he has that kind of um, 
I hate God, you know, kind of look about him, you know? <laughs> it's like the, the, the look is so iconic. <laughs> yeah. Both of them, like Marty is more chubby and like really like worn out by life. And, and Russ just looks like this fucking redneck. Yeah. yeah, it's great. So the question is that there is uh, some murders, you know, there's, there's a, you know, that are similar to some murders that Rust and, and uh, Marty basically were given credit for solving back in 1995. So that's when we shift time back to 1995 and um, we see that Marty and, uh, and Cole are investigating this uh, murder of Laura, Dora Lang, a prostitute. Yes. And this is when the strong visual elements of the show is first presented to us because we find this uh, ritualistic murder. You know, there's antlers, spirals, like all sorts of very cool, like pagan images and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is already like by this time they, they find this, you're already like e either you're already hooked there or you didn't, you didn't get understand anything that they were doing because up until the, like when I, I remember very vividly when I watched the first episode, I was so intrigued by the by the cinematography of this, and uh, they have like the the atmosphere on like it's on point from the get go. It's filmed on thirty five millimeters, so it has this realistic kind of grainy look to it. And then you see like the intro. The intro video is fantastic with the song by the Handsome Family, and. And then it starts, and you see this murder scene with the tree, the bondage, the sepia-colored theme of the show. And everything there is like what you will get from these eight perfect episodes. Oh. And this is in the beginning. Like, like let's just you know go back a little bit in time to, uh, to this year. And this is the beginning of TV, of modern television as we know it today, really. You know, yeah. there, there weren't two... There was, the beginning of television, HBO having these cinematic shows, these multi-part things that are more like eight-hour films as opposed to episodic television. And yes. you know, I, I definitely credit True Detective along with Breaking Bad. You know, those those types of uh, projects as um, something to put the medium into the future. You know, this is like a very groundbreaking uh, endeavor, in my opinion. Yes, and what I think is also that, um, I mean, when you compare it to the likes of Breaking Bad or The Sopranos, and I mean, you can really name this show in one way with, uh, with The Wire, um, Breaking Bad, and Sopranos, and these shows, but all the other shows started straight up as shows with, with like actors that have been prominent in shows. But this show here was one of the first where two renowned Hollywood actors started acting in a show which like is now a thing that almost everybody does i mean by now almost everybody played in star wars in some form or another or in a marvel movie but like these two guys were like one of the first to say like oh this is an interesting project and maybe it's because it's only was it's only eight episodes and they were it was sure that they wouldn't have to come back as this if it like fails but they were the first to really commit to playing a show for TV as like big Hollywood actors. Yeah, that's a good point because that was never really done prior to this. I, you know, definitely think that was a, it's definitely a prominent sort of thing. Yeah. Um, also in this episode, we learn of another murder 
of uh, Mary Fontenot, uh, who had disappeared actually five years prior to this. Um, so, you know, there's all these different strands of plot that are being presented in the first episode. And um, we get to have a glimpse more into Cole's background when, uh, when Marty invites Cole over for dinner. You know, that's like a thing I guess cops do. You know, they invite each other's their partners over for dinner to meet the families and things like that. Oh. Yeah, yes. I mean, I, I can understand why they do it because they you maybe it's like a like a subversive thing to like here, this is my family, and if you're not my partner hundred percent and I can like trust you with my life, these people will suffer eventually. Probably, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you uh, watch this show as it aired, or did you watch it like as like uh, all the way through the first time around? No, it was um, of course like back then there was no streaming of these things. We have like an app called Sky, which has a lot of the HBO productions. But uh, back then this app wasn't there, so like I read about the show on the internet and went went my way as I mostly do with like illegal downloads. But I watched it in real time, but like I just like downloaded it on Mondays and watched it on a Monday evening then. I remember seeing a poster for this on the subway going to work one morning. Like it would just show up at the, you know, the subway station has like advertisements for shows and things like that. And I was like Im immediately struck by the poster. It's like true detective. Yes. I'm like, oh, damn, isn't that, that's Matthew McConaughey and uh, Woody Harrelson. This looks interesting. And that was the days of uh, HBO Go. I believe that was the app. It was called HBO Go back then. And uh, that, I didn't have like proper HBO, but having, just being able to watch the app was like novel back then. So I got that and it became my weekly rituals to watch each, each episode of this show. Yeah, I mean, this is like still how kind of like how I like my shows best. I I kind of like the anticipation of knowing there's a new episode every week. And I mean, they do it with like the bigger shows that they don't drop the whole season at once. Um, and I, I don't know, like it's kind of the way we were raised, you know, like with having a show on TV, like on Streamline TV. And you were just like waiting for next week to see a new episode of Twin Peaks or, or stuff like that. And I mean, yeah, sometimes it's cool if a show drops in one ball, like with um, um, what was that? Um, Damn, man. No, Chapel Wait, Mass, um, the vampire show we all love so much. Midnight Mass. Netflix. Uh, Midnight Mass, that was it, yeah. Like, it was great that they, like, just put this on, like, in one, so you could watch it in one sitting, pretty much. But, like, I do prefer having, like, one episode a week where you can really dive in. And I remember back then there weren't, like, five million shows coming out a year. But it was like something special, especially something with this. And then when I downloaded it, I watched it on Mondays and then I thought about it and I rewatched it on Tuesdays because there was room. Nowadays, you're so busy with like keeping up with shows that it's sometimes impossible to watch everything in real, like in real time. No, totally. Yeah. So the dinner scene is uh, we get to see that, uh, you know, Cole has uh, this past that's uh you know, kind of obscure and Marty's kind of like this local guy, you know, um, 
Cole's like that, the interloper. Like he's from a different part of Texas, or I, he's actually from Texas, and we're yes. in Louisiana. And um, you know, we see that Marty's more of this kind of good old boy. You know, shows up, does the job, typical cop kind of thing. Doesn't work too hard. You know that sort of stuff. And that Cole is um, this kind of introspective, um, you know, philosophical guy with like trauma in his past. You know. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he he went through a lot, and like there's this time he was in Alaska, like being isolated and remote. And we get to learn that like uh, Rust lost his daughter, and um, in a, in a really horrible way, which made made him into this pessimistic kind of insane person like not like well not insane but you know what i mean like he's he's definitely like struck uh, he's been stricken by by tragedy and i think like he's a wounded and angry man at war with himself oh yeah very well put what's interesting about the the scene is um michelle monahan's uh portrayal of maggie um marty's wife and yeah in, the way I see this thing, Maggie is the the normal world, like the reflection of the actual of, of actual normal society. You know, she's the voice yeah. of reason that we measure all the darkness, you know, around her. Like we see Cole and his darkness. We see Marty and all of his like completely like. <laughs> You know, misogyny, uh, you know, you know, just philandering, like all this kind of stuff and how that impacts the world and, you know, all of his excuses for all the fucked up stuff that he does, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So episode two is titled Seeing Things. Once again, 1995, the uh, we meet Charlie Lang, who is Dora Lang's may or may not be ex-husband who knows if they were actually ever married you know or if it was like some kind of down home like uh common law kind of thing you know yeah 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 now he's incarcerated uh cole and and rust uh rust and uh marty interview him and uh we learn that his that dora was uh going to a church she was involved in this church okay and they also mm-hmm. learn about this uh you know, a house of ill repute out in the woods. And uh, so they brace this place up, they search it, they find Dora's diary there. Okay, and they go through the diary looking for evidence. And this is where uh, things start really coming together as far as the narrative goes. There's an excerpt in her diary that says, I closed my eyes and saw the king in yellow moving through the forest. So we have the first appearance of the king in yellow charlie lang uh, talks about um his uh, he was also cellmates with a guy named reggie ledoux all right now reggie ledoux is a huge, big character in this and um he's also is a, a meth guy like he cooks meth and he talks about a place called carcosa where rich people get together to worship the devil quote unquote and um you know kill basically <laughs> yeah so that that's that, uh go ahead yeah uh, that that um that scene man when when he when he read that that was like i 
I remember like sitting at home and I'm like, okay, watch it. I'm like, blah, 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 the king in yellow. And like, what the fuck? What did he just say? Wait, stop, go back. Did he just mention the king in yellow? Because I had no idea what this show was actually about. But I had like the book, The King in Yellow. And like I read this beforehand, like being a, like a Lovecraft nerd. And, and I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, this, 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 this is this like a weird fiction piece? Is this like, yeah. is this based on a Lovecraft story? And, and I was so giddy about this. And I remember that people afterwards were posting like, oh yeah, I bought this book by Robert Chalmers and blah. And then they were reading, it's like, oh, it's not about True Detective in the book. I'm like, yeah, no, it isn't. It's a bit older. <laughs> and and uh, so like all of a sudden this book ranked real high on Amazon's sales list because everybody was like looking for this book yeah yeah definitely and and then even um like I, you know i like you you know I'm, I'm a weird fiction guy you know weird tales uh lovecraft all that stuff it robert e howard you know more modern weird fiction writers uh poe like all that sort of business and i was familiar with the king in yellow prior to that i have a couple different versions of the book because i like the different covers they have and um but the thing is too is like carcosa isn't even specifically a uh a robert chambers concept i think the first appearance of carcosa is in the short story an inhabitant of carcosa by uh ambrose bierce and that was written you know, prior to uh, the King in Yellow uh, mythos, yeah. and um, yeah, you know, so that and then also Carcosa appears in uh, you know Carla Wood Wagner stories. Uh, Lovecraft has references to Carcosa, and uh, yeah. but I believe that the the Yellow King is exclusively a uh, well. Let me say this with a caesura: it's exclusively a Chambers thing. You know, the yeah. Yellow sign. However. And we're going to talk more about this in the next episode. They're similar to Lovecraft, you know, in the Lovecraft Cthulhu mythos. A lot of authors have tried their hand at expanding the universe. So the yellow sign has actually become a life, a thing of its own, independent of Robert Chambers. And people have expanded on it. There's a book of short stories that came out a couple of years ago of uh, a lot of different authors doing their own take on the mythos stories and expanding it, bringing it to modern times, like that sort of stuff. Yeah. But it was like, for me, that part was like, okay, whoever did this show. And I mean, it was before I actually like re- done, re- done research for, uh, okay, this is the author. This is the director one. And I just watched these shows and hope they were good. And like, having the setting already like in the second season and we're going to talk about like where we became actual fans but i remember back to back the reference to the king in yellow me like my my jaw dropped and then they find this church and this abandoned looking church going in and finding this picture drawn on the wall and then like latest there i was like a lifer for that show man yeah, definitely. And, you know, it hits all the notes for me, man. And and originally going into this, I thought it was going to be just like a, you know, really good crime show, you know, which, and it was, it started yeah. out as like this really compelling, you know, police crime kind of thing. And then when this arcane element got added to it is when I totally bought into this whole thing, you know, and, yeah. and the references to Carcosa and the Yellow King, um, really hooked me in the only thing that comes to mind was uh the hannibal television series have you ever seen that 
Yeah, of course I have. Yeah. yeah. Now, if they had the imagery and there was maybe mm-hmm. a hint of some of the mythology behind it, but they never really expanded on that stuff. So that was like the first like television precedent is delving into this kind of occult arcane world that True Detective yeah. went into. It was like this, you know, horns in the forest and, you know, kind of folky, you know, myth- you know folklore-esque, you know, references and things like that. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say. It's like now it was like a gigantic success, like Yellow Jackets and, and From, where you have these elements of folk horror. Like it's like so popular and, and it's 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 in popular culture now. And back then, not a lot of people gave a shit about folk horror. I mean, like the only reference we had before this was something like Blair Witch Project, which also to me... I'm pretty certain has had 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 an impact on Pizzolatto writing this show. Like, like there's a lot of stuff that I could connect to Blair Witch, but I think also we're going to do this in the in the next yeah, episode. We definitely want to mention yeah. that, and there's also yeah. uh, some other literary things that connect with Pizzolatto that reference Blair Witch and all that kind of stuff. So we'll hold off yeah. on that. Yeah. So the third episode, the locked room. Also, very cool titles for each episode. I thought. Yes. You know. Yeah. So, uh, 1995, Cole and Marty, they locate the owner of the ch- of the burnt down church, and this is where we see Joel Thurio, played by Shea Wiggum, who uh, Shea Wiggum is one of those uh, HBO actors. You know what I mean? He's like he pops up in all kinds of like HBO like shows, and he's a really yes. cool like character actor. You know. He's really good, especially like as as Joel Theriot. Like the the sermon he gives, man, that was great. Yeah. Dude, I was <laughs> I was I, I love I wanna see the extended cut of just this sermon. Yes. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> Cause even what he's saying in the sermon is like some cosmic horror too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, and he's I mean, going- I, I st- <laughs> You yeah, go. he's like just going off on like the star, the space, and the stars between yeah. the stars, and we the face we wear is not our own, and all this like very, very Lovecraft stuff, you know. Yes, fantastic stuff, man. So we learned that Dora Lang did, in fact, attend some of these, uh, you know, go to this church. We she was often seen with a tall man with facial scarring. Okay, and this goes back to the reference. You know that he was referenced earlier as a, a spaghetti monster with like scars on his face and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now around this time is when we get a glimpse into uh, Rust's personal philosophy and how it differs from Marty. You know, like I said earlier, Marty is this, um, you know, good old boy, you know, Christian light sort of guy. You know. I think at one point in this show, he talks about how he wanted to be like a baseball player or some bullshit like that, you know? Yeah, very American. Very American. He's a true American, you know? Yeah. But Rust is not that type of guy at all. He's not religious, you know? And I think even Marty comments on that. He's like, you know, just assumes that he was religious because he saw in cold Spartan apartment a cross hanging from the wall. Yeah. And uh, he's like, uh, I don't, I'm not religious. You know, then, of course, he makes the mistake of uh, asking about his belief system and Cole oh, man. launches into this super intense, dark, 
nihilistic point of view that he has. <laughs> Look, I consider myself a realist, all right? But in philosophical terms, I'm what's called a pessimist. What does that mean? It means I'm bad at parties. That's so good, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then M Marty's response to that was like, you're, you're not so great outside of parties either. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like kind of like the wit and almost like this dark humor element to it, which makes this so this show so fantastic. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, it's um, I mean, this in, in this part now rewatching it, it's like, OK, they're they're putting so many puzzle pieces out there. And if you look carefully, and I mean, this time I took notes and everything, you will find stuff that will be important way later. And so, for example, is this like very like in mid of the of the third episode when they're driving around and like trying to find out stuff, they will like they go to like they park in front of a building. I think it's an abandoned school or something or it's at school. And there's a guy on a lawnmower mowing the lawn. And yeah. uh, I guess, you, yeah, and it's like, you can, yeah, you can see it, you can like, and it's like, back then I was like, okay, it's a random guy, but like this person will play an important role later. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, yeah, there, there's a lot about, a lot of things about timeline and foreshadowing. And there's also yeah. a uh, comment that Rust makes back, I think in first episode where, um, they're, they used to call him the tax man because he had this big book that he carried around, book, big uh, notebook, you know? Yeah. And, and um, Rust is like, yeah, I've always taken a lot of notes. You know, we write stuff down. You never know when something breaks the case down the line, you know? Yeah. Like some detail you put here, like a few weeks later, you're like, this is what, this is the one thing that you picked up on that will break the case. And the moment that we first run into the guy on the lawnmower it's like that one of those details that you know broke the case because he actually makes reference yeah. to that like along back further down the line he references that whole thing so his intense note-taking procedure um and percept perception is like a big part of the story yeah the third episode also next to this is really like the opening to the whole Tuttle theme. So yeah. this this church, church and conspiracy theory that is happening. And like the like Marty says, like when they have this talk about religion, that uh, Marty says things, uh, religion keep people from doing bad things. And Rust's condor is like they still like they like the, the churches. Like I think Marty said, like, yeah, there were dark ages with the church. But nowadays, like, it's something good, and Rust is just like, no, they still do that shit, just not out in the open. So there comes this this anti-religious, really straight-up philosophical discussion about religion in it, too, which uh, by this point you can see that, like, the, the worldview of Marty gets shattered more and more, which also then connects to Marty's behavior with uh, being the good family man that he claims he is, but actually being an adulterer, you know? Yeah, a serial adulterer. Like the guy cannot yeah. can't stay faithful to his wife at all. <laughs> it's pretty apparent, yeah. you know. Yeah. The heavy and drinker. Especially like cho yeah, choosing choosing women that look like younger versions of his wife and 
But then, like, when, when later on, when Rust mows his lawn and, like, sits at home, like, that he gets all crazy about it. And it's like, it's my lawn. I mow my own lawn. So it's like this typical narcissistic assholes that it's like, if I do it, it's okay. But if someone else does it, like, this, this it's not like possible. Could you, could you imagine, like, I mean, it's it will be a topic. But if Maggie would have said back then, like, yeah, I had, like, a intercourse with someone else. Marty would lo- would have lost his shit, but like we will see something about this later on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, in some ways, Marty is is like uh, the epitome of the male ego, completely out of control. You know what I mean? Just yes. like narcissistic, uh, gaslighting, um, misogynistic, and so, like he doesn't really have like um, like he doesn't see women as like other people in some ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. When when he when he when he goes off on on his like on his on his uh, spouse or his uh, love interest like the secretary which is portrayed by uh, now a successful actress uh, Alexandra Daddario, um, which I think is a really attractive woman. Oh yeah, she's and I'm she's like beautiful, beautiful how, lady. How how does a guy like Marty get a girl like her? Like and and then it's like when she tells him that she wants to go out with another guy because he has a relationship and she would actually love to have someone in her life. He goes completely off and almost like like he almost attacks her. And it's like, yeah, and she's like, you could be that guy, but then you would have to leave your wife. And then it's like, no. Then again, it's like this religious, cultural aspect. You don't, you don't uh, leave your wife, and marriage is sacred. This whole bullshit. Yeah. In this episode, we also see that there's a, a task force being assembled to take the case away from the local state police. You know, and this. This actually plays in because uh, in the press they're they're talking about like uh, you know satanic satanic murders or things like that, and then um, this is where the the Tuttle family gets involved because we find out later that there's a tendril of connection between the Tuttles and all the stuff that's that the police are uncovering with these uh, murders. Yes, we also find out about uh, another young girl who was murdered, Rianne Olivier. And uh, that was supposedly like a, an accidental death, but it shared a lot of the same uh, characteristics of the Lang murder. And uh, we also find out that there's a connection with uh, Light of the Way, a religious school owned by the Tuttle family. Once again, the Tuttles come up, the Tuttle name, you know, and that's we, we find out about, um, you know, Reggie Ledoux's connection to this drug dealer, uh, sex offender. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, just all around great guy, you know. Yes, <laughs> really, really nice gentleman. Yeah, yeah, sick tattoos, like that sort of thing. Now, episode four. Who goes there? This might go down as one of the top ten single best episodes of television. Period, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I back that. Yeah, you know, and um. So we, we get some intel about about Reggie Ledoux, and we know that he's uh you know now now that he's out out in the world he's like the sole meth cook for um a, a motorcycle gang, and um it turns out that the iron what the hell are they called uh East Texas Biker Gang yeah the Iron Crusaders let me, let me, Iron Crusaders yeah let me mark this yeah that he's the sole cook meth cook for the iron crusaders 
And uh, when Cole was undercover, that was uh, something that he had connections with. So this gets into this whole like very cool aspect of the show. Very exciting. Coincidentally, Marty's world pretty much explodes because uh, yes, <laughs> his um, infidelity is uh, is is revealed. You know, Maggie discovers everything. Um, she leaves him. You know, and of course, you know, rightfully so. And uh, you know, Marty Marty's in like a very bad, vulnerable uh, place at this at this time. Yeah. So Cole uh, has like a contact, this guy Ginger, um, who is uh, he? It's like his in, but his his old persona is uh, you know allegedly was killed or you know they're shot. So this is where we get to see Cole as like who he was as an undercover agent. So he goes pulls out this trunk. He's got you know heavy ordnance in there. This like really cool leather jacket. A bottle yeah. of uh, whiskey, which for the most part, except for at one time on his uh, daughter's birthday, Cole has been you know abstinent from drinking or doing anything, yeah. really. He's been living this very straight-laced sort of life. But now he's taking on this other persona of who he needs to be to infiltrate this biker gang. So he's taking, yeah. a, taking a hit off the whiskey bottle. He puts his, like, cool leather jacket on, you know, and... uh he needs Marty to be solid throughout this whole thing. Like Marty's totally yeah. distracted by his uh, disintegrating family life. Yeah, but he ends up like stepping up and stepping in. So uh, that's like an aspect. And I think when we when we covered all the episodes, we need to go into like the relationship between the two of them, which also transpires over the show. But uh, yeah, like. Uh, we see a side of Rust now that he's like willing, like he, he only lives for his work. And I think that's because his daughter passed and he has nothing else to do. And he's convinced that his work matters. That that's like, he he's risking to get kicked out and he does something illegally. Now he's, he steals cocaine from the, uh, from the police. Um, like from the, uh, how do you call it? Like the department where all the, uh, the, the evidence, yeah, the evidence. yeah, right. The evidence from yeah. So, and I mean, he knows what will happen then, and he will have to go down into this persona and go ill. And then he, yeah, Ginger takes him on this bender to prove that he's still loyal. And like this image of Rust being high as a kite, but still reasonable, and like being drunk and like stuffed with drugs, and like it, it became one of the most popular memes that people send around. Yeah. What what the the other insight into Cold's uh, character too is um, like in some ways Cold's mission is larger than like you know this is reinforcing what you said is larger than his job as a police officer you know what I mean yeah like the being a cop is like his vehicle to do this kind of thing you know and I feel like Marty yeah. is just like a typical cop who shows up does his job, collects his pension, puts in overtime, doesn't really give a shit about anything besides like, you know, strong arm people, the, you know. Yeah, he likes to he likes the position that he has, like the authority. I think he's one of those guys that can see at home like he he tries to control his family not through love, but through authority, like the patriarchy kind of thing. 
and and like this doesn't mean anything to Rust. Rust is only there to work the case, and that's why why he keeps on doing it. And that's when when the timelines, like the three timelines, collide in the last episodes. We'll come to where we can see like Marty is like all in all the time. And also, I know Rust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no Marty. Rust. Rust. Yeah. And also, um, like the rest of the guys in the department just really seem to be like a bunch of chuckleheads, really. You know. Yeah. Like, and the only guy with anything on the ball really seems to be Rust. Okay, important question here now. As a as a European, as a German, do American cops really look like this? Do they all wear like shitty jackets and like these pantaloons that no one really wants? That's a difficult question to answer um, because it, I I think like under like co like plain clothes cops just look like dudes out on the street really you know what i mean yeah because like these these portray like the douchebags that are in the in the office like they all look alike and if you watch uh, the wire or if you watch treme and and all these cool shows the cops they always look like like these the, not not the ones that, that patrol the streets but like these detectives in offices they always have like these shitty ties and way too large pants eating the donut and all that shit. It's like, it's so weird seeing that. Yeah. I would say that that's not accurate to the, in this day and age, maybe because, um, okay. Yeah. I think that like detectives and plainclothes cops kind of dress like whatever region of the country they're in, you know, like out here, okay, okay. you know, in the tri-state area, Metro New York metropolitan area, they just look like dudes you see on the street. Really? Okay. I imagine like cops nowadays in the bayou, they just have like short cargo pants and wear like these fishing hats. They just wear like uh, MAGA hats. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, make Marty make Marty great again. Marty is their <laughs> Marty is their hero, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's exactly it, probably. <laughs> so this part. Of the, of the narrative here is, is really, this is like one of my favorite episodes of television. You know what I mean? We have the yeah. broken Marty. Uh, he's trying to, uh, you know, he wants Rust to console him, you know, at the bar. And yeah. Rust is like, look, man, this is not my, you know, this isn't my problem. <laughs> this is like, <laughs> he's like, I think one of the cla most classic lines, he's like, you know, th this ain't a bedside. This is a bar, not a bedside. You know what I mean? And I'm just like, yeah, just I don't want to hear it. You're you're a he in in his mind. He's like, yeah, Marty, you fucked up. You got to undo this thing yourself. We got some real shit to do here, you know. And I need you solid, you know. And he yeah. actually misleads him because he 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 meets with Maggie, and um, you know, she's just like, I, I want to get, I just want to get divorced, you know, while everything's clean. Just get her, get out, you know. And she's like definitely convinced that she wants to leave marty but what he tells marty <laughs> is that he's like oh yeah i met with maggie and I, you know she can see you guys reconciling like shortly yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, dude whatever whatever like whatever's uh, helping the purpose you know like yeah. he's he's lying cheating stealing if he has to as long as he can go forward with his work yeah and uh, i just thought that was pretty awesome how he did that yes um, yeah so he they infiltrate the bike gang. He has to go on this mission with Ginger to uh, a really harebrained scheme to steal money from uh, these drug dealers 
in like a uh, project and the logistics just seem all wrong and fucked up but you know cole's like you know it's gonna cowboy it and go in there and get information out of ginger to find reggie ledoux who was like the linchpin in this whole caper right so one of the most exciting one like one take one yeah. camera angle moment in in all of television happens in this like gunfight scene that takes place in the projects where Cole uh, extracts Ginger and they you know because like, I I need this guy to put me in with Reggie and it is like one of the, one of the best scenes man it's so cool yeah absolutely I remember going back watching this like after I finished the episode I'm like what the fuck just happened and I just instantaneously like skip back 15 minutes and rewatch it again because there's so much happening and it's so intense yeah it's also like the nighttime setting and the way they filmed it it's like actual like real like a cop show in a way and uh yeah man like always seeing Marty like with his eyes like popped way open because he's so on drugs but still like being rational all the time which again shows like what kind of a character are like how disciplined he is underneath all the chaos yeah no absolutely yeah so episode five were uh the secret fate of all life now, it's like a leviathan record <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah totally um so back in 1995 Ginger and uh, the still undercover Cole, they meet up with DeWall, who is uh, Ledoux's, uh, Reggie Ledoux's uh, partner in this whole uh, you know cook thing in, at this bar. And um, Ginger's face is all beat up because um, you know he had he had to get he had to get roughed up a little bit when they extracted him. And uh, of course, DeWall is suspicious of this whole operation. You know, you got some stranger; they're doing things out of the ordinary. Um, Rust's character is like, you know, I represent this cartel down in Mexico. We, you know, we're trying to do this and blah, blah, blah. And like the whole thing is fishy. And DeWall is like, you know, I'm not into it at all. You know, and, uh, and he, he, he says something just like, you know, I don't want to see your face again. It's, it makes me want to do things to it. <laughs> and I'm like, That's like a serious threat, man. <laughs> yeah. So they tell uh, DeWall and they find his, his uh, meth compound out in the woods. And uh, this is kind of like where all, both worlds kind of um, converge here in this part. Because yes. I got to be honest, like in, um, when I was watching this the first time around, one of the most exciting things about it was there was a moment where I thought, that some supernatural creature was actually like that. That's how this yeah. thing was going. Like, I really did think that this was going to become like a full fledged, like cosmic horror story. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I thought the same thing back then. Yeah. Because we were still expecting like the, 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 the spaghetti monster that is being referred to. We haven't seen it yet. There's always the mention of something dark and it's it's luring but we haven't seen it yet which is again like a trope but we'll talk about it of a yeah. weird fiction story yeah. yeah so uh you know they infiltrate this camp um 
we find out what's actually going on there that there's these uh these two uh young young children that are being abused by the Reggie and DeWall. They're cooking meth. Um DeWall makes a break for it and is uh killed by his own booby trap system. <laughs> so that's pretty brutal. And then uh Rust apprehends Reggie Ledoux and uh he's got him on his knees uh cuffed. You know, Reggie Ledoux, uh, like I said, he looks like uh, a former member of Buzz Oven. I think if you go to the uh, Encyclopedia Metallum and you look up Buzz <laughs> Oven under former <laughs> members, you'll find uh, Reggie Ledoux's name on there. <laughs> and he, he probably also played in like I Hate God at one point, too. <laughs> and Weed Eater. <laughs> he was one of the many bass players in I Hate God. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> but this is where um, Marty Marty finds the two kids locked up in like a storage unit. Reggie Ledoux is obviously uh, zonked out on some kind of psychedelics because he starts uh, spouting all this stuff about the black 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 stars rise and Carcosa. Okay, and yeah. um, you know these are excerpts directly from uh, Casilda's song which is an imaginary poem that appears in uh, The King in Yellow. And uh, so, yeah. So that, of course, piques the interest of, uh, you know, of of Rust, who's already has like an interest in all this kind of arcane, you know, occult sort of stuff. And I think he asked him at one point, he's like, why the antlers? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But Marty... Shows up and just caps Reggie right there, shoots him in the head because of he's just overtaken by rage by what he's seen him do to the to the uh, children. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that is that for such, Reggie do. <laughs> yeah, and then it's like the uh, Rust quotes then Reggie later on with the time is a flat circle thing. Everything we do, we do over and over and over again, and it's just like. It triggers it triggers the intensity even more. And the thing is like what it reminded me of here is when the first season of Twin Peaks finished and it's like wait, what why why is it the end now? Like it's like what? And it's like it's almost like okay, this chapter is closed. Now we go on to find out the actual big picture. And that's probably what also can like clicked with me because everybody knows like how much I love the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, and has the same has the same thing that like the first season was already already crazy with Twin Peaks and like weird and this mythos, but then after the first season ended and they go into the second one, it just goes absolutely bonkers, and that's what we have here too. Yeah, because at this point they think the uh, you know hey. Case is solved. These are the murderers. You know, case closed. You know, but uh, that's not. We find later, as time goes on into you know 2002, that that's not necessarily the case. So, um, yeah. you know, we we jump up to uh, 2002. Marty and his wife are uh, on un, uneasy terms, but they're still they're they're reconciled for the most part. But you can tell that Maggie doesn't really trust him. You know, yeah, you know, rightly so. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, he he tried he tried to be good, and he was for a while. But then again, and that's a to- like a topic throughout the whole thing: the nature of men. And 
uh, yeah, like his his uh, his instincts are still there, and he acts on them, unfortunately, with a girl that he saved on earlier. Yeah, yeah, that that's like a weird weird uh, circle to be closed in this one. Uh, yeah. Cole Cole's also has a woman in his life at this point. You know, he's got this uh, physician. You know, and they seem to be yeah. uh, intellectually on the same level, which is cool. You know? Yeah. Uh, Audrey. Um, Marty's older daughter is entering her uh, rebellious phase, you know, so that's always a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, there's a uh, another case that comes up where, uh, you know, Cole has become known as an interrogator. This guy that will get, you know, confessions out of people. So they're interrogating this one guy that's involved in like a, like a PCP, like, you know, caper. And he... um mentions that he has information on the yellow king and uh you know dora lang and all the stuff that was uh you know withheld you know so cole yeah. is like what, what do you mean you don't know anything and he starts smacking him around he tries to get more information out of, out of him yeah now it turns up that that same guy uh coincidentally decides to take his own life <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the plot thickens. So we're starting to understand that um, the case didn't end with uh, with the Ledoux boys. You know, that there's there's other stuff going on. Yes. Now, in the present, we learn that uh, the two uh, investigating police are, uh, they suspect that Cole is, is actually a murderer that is uh, involved in, fresh cases that are very similar to the ones from 1995 and that's why that's what the is, is behind this entire investigation that they're doing with um with rust and and uh marty yeah also the death of the, the suspicious death of reverend tuttle two yeah. years before yep. um there's so much that they found in like the case books and which could lead them to marty and marty's erratic behavior especially now sitting in front of them with the way that he's now taking his knives and and making people out of like beer cans and his big hug mug and he's there they're like really like what what the fuck is wrong with him but then Marty also gets like he asks like what the fuck do you actually want from me? Why am I here? And then we then we find out that they have like the idea that that uh, Rust might have taken their lives and maybe fallen to the same pattern of the killer that he hunted all these years back. Yeah, yeah. So so that's uh, that's what you know the the that's the re big reveal as to what all this is about. That they think that Cole's behind some murders in the current time and that he had been a serial killer basically since you know 1995 you know yeah yeah episode six haunted houses uh so this is where uh you know back in, in 2020 20 2002 uh cole starts to sort of investigating his own string of what he considers to be related crimes you know, and this is where we he catches up with um, with uh, the preacher and three yeah. yeah, he's yeah. left uh, you know his practice and become a drunk basically. So from uh, from Theriot, we learn about uh, Wellspring. It's uh, you know, like the school. 
after his ministry he had closed down, he had become, uh, you know, he'd worked there. And this is where he found that there was some very questionable photographs, uh, incriminating photographs that are connecting the Tuttle family to very sketchy goings-on that involves kids and things like that. The two uh, investigators, they catch up with Maggie, they interview her, and, um, you know, she, they ask him about, uh, their, you know, the divorce with Marty, and she claims yep. that it has uh, absolutely nothing to do with uh, Cole, and, um, you know, she asks, they ask him about Cole, ask her about Cole, and she's like, you know, he's a good man, you know, with integrity, that sort of thing, yep. you know. Now, this is where we learn that uh what what actually happened because there's there's a there's been all of these um allusions to a falling out that Cole and Marty had over something and we, we finally just figure out what it is because you know as you mentioned Marty once again had started cheating on his on Maggie with a with a woman who he had found at that hillbilly whorehouse <laughs> like out in the woods yeah he'd, and that's given her giving her money to like, Hey, try something else. And she's like working at like a, a T-Mobile or something like that. And it's, it's so repugnant, man. That even after she tells him like, do you remember who I am? And he's like, Oh yeah. Right. That he still goes through with that. You know, like if he like, if he's like a, like a hound, like he is, it's like, Oh yeah. I want to bang like a, a little girl or like a young girl. It's like, okay, that's up to him. But like, I mean, she's she's like she's not a kid. Don't get me wrong. But uh, but then like finding out she's actually one of the girls that he gave money to to make something out of her life. That is so grossed out, man, and <laughs> so so gnarly. And he still goes through it. Like he's such a scumbag. Like he's actually like an asshole. Man. Yeah, I I agree with you. It it's a real indicator into the weakness of his character by doing something like that because. You know, obviously, he she was somebody that you know ten years prior or whatever, however many years that was, um, he was trying to help her get out of this life, and then years later, you know, obviously she's no longer a prostitute, but he sort of like falls into this like sketchy underworld with her, where he's cheating on his wife, and you know, it's just real, it's real sleazy, you know. Yeah, he has like this. This is like a reoccurring theme with Marty that when he cheats on his wife, he cheats with girls that are like, like almost like younger versions of his wife, and then um, he protects the little girl because he sees his daughter in them. And later on, he has like this argument with his daughter when she hooks up with guys and does drugs, and he like acts like a, all like super dad. And um, but now this little girl that he helped is not a little girl anymore, but a young woman. And then all of a sudden, it's like it's okay to have sex with her. Yeah, there, there's like a real dodgy element to that, you know. No, it's also like this is one of the aspects that Marty and Rust always fight about. That they like, you know, like both of them say, "Don't judge me for the way I act and think, because you're you're a shithead as well." Yeah, and also like. The difference between Marty and Cole too is like Cole is, you know, he he acknowledge like, I guess one of the things that even Maggie says about Cole is that 
she said she stated that he's always known exactly who he was you know yeah like, he looks at all of his flaws and whatever and doesn't portray himself as a good guy or a bad guy yes you know and actually cole even says that when he's um interviewing those uh those prostitutes at the truck stop something about like you know or no even even when they're at the revival you know he he indicates to uh to marty you know we need bad men like us to keep the other bad men out so he doesn't see himself yes. as a good guy he just is like no. an absolutist in his behaviors and his conduct you know it's like i do this these are the things i do this is what i believe in this is my like you know sense of honor and this this rules i live by and that's me marty marty is the one who has all of the distractions and like misconceptions and denials and uh yeah I'm, a, I'm really a good guy yet i cheat on my wife you know like i i you know victimize young women like all this kind of stuff you know yeah but i have to say like in in total like if we would need to draw a conclusion now after the whole like whole season is done I actually think that these two guys are actually in their heart good guys, but they're so damaged, like they're really badly damaged goods, which make them so imperfect. But like the cause, they stick through it, like un right until the end, which we will come to like in the eighth episode, where they actually like they go through with it because in the end they know what is right and what they have to do. So we're we're closing in on the conclusion of this whole thing so episode seven is after you're gone you know this is where um in the present time because now we're pretty much a hundred percent in in the current timeline yeah you know, the right. storylines in the in 1995 and 2002 have been those those lines have already been told and now we're in the current state of things so you know current times cole um convinces marty to continue their work and you and i we've been we've been uh referencing continuing the work you know what i mean yeah what what really uh convinces marty is cole brings him to his um storage unit and uh shows him a videotape that he found at the Tuttle place that is like you know pretty brutal it shows a bunch of guys in masks and the uh uh, Mary Fontenot, young girl being uh, raped and murdered by them ritualistically. So that's yeah. what really puts Marty over the edge, and he's all in on finishing their job. Yeah. Yeah, and then, then like one of one of my favorite parts is when they um, in their in their search for clues and people that might have helped them, they find Miss Dolores, and uh, she used to work for Sam Tuttle. And she actually gives like the the actual um, connection to who the the scar faced man is, and then when 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 he speaks of like uh, shows her the drawings, so she says this older like elderly black woman who lives with her granddaughter, I think. Yeah. And uh, she just sits in her in her rocking chair, and then they ask her stuff, and then Marty, I uh, know, then Rust shows her the drawings of the stick figures, the uh, what do they call them, bird catchers? Yeah. Yeah, and um, and then she's like, she talks about, oh, you know, Carcosa, and then she has like this this monologue with like, um, 
he who eats the wind and rejoice death is just is is hot is not the end um he rose in the wind of invisible verses and it's it's so cool like this this monologue of the old women is so cool and dark yeah, yeah. total weird fiction right there excellent yes yeah 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 so they they find out that um this uh scarred guy the guy with the scars on his face is a one is a childress now there's two different families there's the childresses and then the tuttles it turns out that yes. tuttle you know the rich overlords in the area they they had he, he had like another family and like the childresses are these kind of bastard children of the tuttles all right yes so uh they locate the address of uh the childress residence which is way out in the bayou and um there's there's a scene that um actually we're leading into the final episode episode eight which is form and void okay there's a scene where um, Marty and Cole are sitting in the office, you know, Marty's uh, private investigator office, and uh, they're just talking about the things that they would like to have done with their lives, you know, like, like uh, you know, Marty's like, I, you know, I thought I was going to be like a baseball player. I, I thought I was going to, you know, do this stuff. And Cole's like, I would, you know, would like to have taught history or painted or anything like that, you know. And um, <clears throat> Marty asked him, he's like, well, you know, you ever, you ever get into any of that? You ever, you ever do any painting now that, you know, now that since you left the force? He's like, nah, he's like, you barely have enough time to get good at one thing. So you better be careful about what that one thing is, you know? And that yeah. really spoke volumes, man. Like, it's like, yeah, these guys, they find these things that they're good at, but it ultimately is their downfall in some ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what I meant. Like in the end, they both like I think acknowledge that this is the only thing that they were meant to do. Now, after the videos and all they've seen, like throughout the whole all the years, they're like a symbiosis, the two of them. And now they have to finish it because it's the only thing they can. Yeah, yeah. So Marty also visits Maggie, and um, and she she says something to him like, "Are you are you saying goodbye?" You know, because yeah. on on some level, I think Marty thinks that they're they're not going to make it through this thing. Yeah, you know that there there's so much going on. There's so many conspiracies. There's so much connection to people with power. Um, there's like real danger out there. You know, he's thinking about how Total was murdered and how these people they're onto this this whole overarching conspiracy, and that he might not make it through this whole thing. That's why he's saying goodbye yeah. to Maggie. Yeah, and that's like it's not even like the, that. They have to find the one killer, which is like still the main premise to find Errol, which is the name, and is the, actually the guy that that uh, that uh, Rust saw on the lawnmower in the third episode, which to me was like, oh man, this is so good, and. Um, but there's this bigger thing, like this church, and we all know like the power that the church has and that they can make things disappear if they don't like it. And the whole Tuttle family empire is like, yeah, it's, it's an over overpowering entity, like the powers that be that Marty and Rust cannot control. So that's, I think, yeah, I, I totally agree with you when you, when, I, when you say that, like probably he knew he might not come back from this. Yeah. yeah. So 
they uh, also they talk about they talk to uh, Papanya and his partner there that look if you guys get the call on this you got to you got to promise me you're going to do the right thing and you're going to show up and they're just yeah. like you know go ahead you know we'll, we'll give you the call I thought it was funny when he he was being like very cryptic when he talked to uh, Papanya and uh, yeah. he's like yeah. he's like you speak in riddles white man <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was cool yeah um. So they're out. They're out trying to find this house. It's way out in the woods, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, they come across uh, the residence, the children's residence, where we have Errol and uh, his nameless sister, cousin, wife, girlfriend, daughter, maybe whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, Errol is really bought into this philosophy. You know, and this is where some of the ver the real weird fiction elements of the story get presented to you. You know, where yeah. this whole thing is not just about a bunch of perverts abusing kids. You know what I mean? There's like a an overarching philosophy and culture behind this whole thing. Yeah, if you when you go through the to the house, it's actually like it looks like comparable to the uh, to all the redneck murder houses in like these horror movies you know yeah it's like this rotten villa out in the nowhere but inside it's like again it has like all these creepy puppets and shit but there's like books upon books upon books and then you because you haven't heard like you heard uh errol talk in two or three scenes but like there when he when he talks to his wife betty uh, which is also played by the by the I, I forgot to write down her name, but she's an actress that was also in Handmaid's Tale in the Leftovers. Oh, okay. She, yeah, she's a fantastic actress, but she plays like this really well, yeah, retarded kind of like uneducated redneck wife. But when Errol speaks, man, that blew my mind. Like he's really soft and well spoken. He has like this this rich Bayou, Louisiana kind of accent that you also find in Treme when the rich people speak. And you see him and he looks like this complete fucking redneck, but he talks like a champion. Yeah, yeah and that just speaks to the fact that the Childresses are like, you know, connected to the Tuttles who are like a uh, old money, like Southern yeah. gentleman family, you know? Yeah, and like, like the bastard sons, it's almost like in Game of Thrones where the bastard sons they get their like like part of the money and the part of the royalties for being the bastard son, but like are not acknowledged as a part of the family. But like here's some money, just keep quiet and keep out of my life. Yeah, basically that's that's what uh, Errol is, you know. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that's we we find they find Errol. There's like the chase scene through what is uh, presented to us as Carcosa, you know, a place with Which stones is... and all this other stuff there, you know. What was, what, I, do you have an idea what this place was supposed to be? Because, I mean, is it like a draining system for the swamp? I mean, there's this these caves and they're all like with plastered stones and everything. All it's right. just like this labyrinth is so crazy. Well, once again, more weird fiction, man. It's, uh... <laughs> Man, so much. Robert E. Howard, Carl Edward Wagner, Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, they all have old stones and sites, ancient sites in all of their stories. 
And that's yeah. exactly what this is. There's it's this is like some former civilization's ruins, basically. And that's yeah. what Errol has claimed as being Carcosa. You know? And and that that's my take yeah. on it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like because like the first the opening when you see like this almost like a pit with the many with the many doors, it's it's crazy. And then it goes into these uh, caverns and, and tunnels, which I thought like is it like is it like the remains of a city that was above that? You know, like the the uh, like like you see like in some like in the Batman movies where there's like an underworld underneath Gotham. Yeah, and I had to think about because I mean the. Uh, the first timeline plays after Hurricane Andrew. The second timeline plays after Katrina, and there's a scene like in the original, like in the first timeline when when they drive through the bayou and you see like these these uh, these flat fields and you see the oil rigs in the industry and and Rust is like, at one point all of this will be covered underneath water. And it's just like a reference to like uh, what will happen with Katrina, um, but it looks like this drainage system for an old city. And yeah, that was like a creepy, fantastic setting for the end. Yeah, you know. So there's the final confrontation between uh, Marty, Rust, and Errol. Um, both men are injured, and in, uh, in a in a in a fight, and then Marty. Before Errol can deliver the fatal blow to um, to Rust, Marty shoots uh, Errol in the head, and both men are taken to the hospital. And it's uh, dubious; we don't know if uh, Rust actually is going to make it or not for a while. But you know, yeah. he pulls out. Yeah, for for a while, like for a moment in that fight scene, I'm like, does Errol have superpowers? Like, is he <laughs> is he the superhuman being? But again, it's like more like one of these characters that we have in these weird fiction kind of horror movies that they're so driven by their belief set and that they get like this almost like superhuman strength because I think he gets stabbed and shot and still gets up and fights Mar like Rust and then Marty as well. And then like Marty has to shoot him and then it's done. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice little nod to like slasher, you know, characters, things yeah. like that. So that, that was very cool. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, you know the the falling falling action of the story. We see both men, uh, you know, uh, Rust's um, pessimism is. I'm not going to say he changes his worldview completely, but it's tempered by his near death experience. You know, and um, yeah. you know he believes he saw into another dimension of consciousness, possibly, and. Uh, Maybe he he has a little bit less of a bleak worldview after almost being killed. Yeah, and it's like if you if like I mentioned before, it's like almost like Matthew McConaughey playing Matthew McConaughey. If you like watch some interviews with him that he did, where he talks about his like his drug experiences and with LSD and all the shit that he took, and like like that monologue in the wheelchair out of the hospital outside the hospital, that's pretty much exactly that. Like that's someone who did like some heavy lifting and drugs. Yeah. 100 percent you know and yeah. uh yeah and that's that's basically the whole narrative that's the basic plot lines the important you know we left a lot out obviously because i didn't want to go through yeah. like a beat by beat you know narrative you can just go and watch it I and mean, i urge i i imagine if you're listening to this you've probably seen this at least once but maybe yeah. go back and give it another 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 watch you know and uh yeah. and check out 
what, what we have to say about it. And, um, and definitely, uh, you know, if you're a Patreon subscriber, we have another episode where we go into some of the deeper themes and we have actually a thesis about this, um, this show and, uh, we get deeper into the philosophy and all the cool, like literary, uh, connections that this magnificent, uh, show has. Yeah. Uh, but, but before we go off, like I, I have two or three points that I wanted to bring up in the sure. end, like after we discussed everything. Um, I, we, we spoke about how well thought out this whole storyline is, like how intertwined all the time layers are, the characters. It's a perfect show. It's it's a it's a eleven out of ten points show, or yeah. like a seven point five on the necro chart. You know, like it's it's <laughs> you can't you cannot as as much as like the uh, the Green Knight is like minus ten is like this is a plus seven five. Um, you cannot like this, it's hard to get better than this. And I when I like rewatched it now and looked at my notes, there's some points that I wanted to bring up and like confront you and hear your thoughts on it. Okay. Okay. The main characters are Rust Cole and Marty Hart. Cole is black, it's dark, it's compressed, it's ancient, you know? It's like it's nature combusted into like its core elements. And the heart is where the love and the soul is. And that's like how they are portrayed in the beginning. Cole is like the dark guy, you know, with the dark thoughts. And like Marty's portrayed as the family and the heart, you know, like I love. But they change roles within the shows now and then that Marty has like the heart, like that Rust has a heart actually. And I think that it's like, it's a cool layer with the choosing of the names that they did. Yeah, definitely. And also, you have to remember that the the Rust Cole prior, like the old, the pre-1995 Rust Cole, where he was a family man, like he probably yes. had love in his life and a, and a daughter, and he felt all these things. And the trauma of losing both of them turned him into this like uh, nihilistic pessimist, you know, cosmic pessimist. Yeah, and that's the same thing, you know, like tree, trees get combusted into coal, you know, like the blooming nature into this like dark piece that is like now, now it's being burnt. So that's like, and like, that's like in character arc that I like, then again, I had to think, but we will talk about like Blair Witch in the other episode. I have, I have a thing that I would ask you. Okay. I think, I think the show has four main characters. Okay. And my, my, my thesis is it's Rust Cole. It's Marty Hart. The friendship of the two of them is one main character that changes through the arc. And the fourth one is actually the environment, La Louisiana, which is in a way like it's a, it's a masterclass in setting an atmosphere. It's very alien. We don't have such places. It's exotic in a bad way. The hopelessness, it's the perfect setting. Imagine this show taking place in Los Angeles or New York. It wouldn't work. The thickness of the like the pressure with the weeping willows, the swamp, the dampness, the mysticism, the voodoo, the bird kitchers, all of this thing. It's almost like an entity in itself in this show. Well, the interesting thing about Louisiana is that it's a melting pot of several cultures, you know, and we'll, we'll get yeah. actually it's funny you brought that up because I have something to say about this in our next in part two of this thing about that. Because there's, uh, you know, the French you know, black culture, you know, Americans, Native Americans, uh, you know, 
the Caribbean people, like Christianity, pagan religions, like everything gets like mixed together in that part of the country. And that is like a very perfect place. It's almost like ancient uh, England. You know how like when Christianity, when the, when the Romans brought Christianity to England, they overlaid it on top of the existing paganism that's there. You know, yeah, that's what I feel like Louisiana is kind of like, you know, it's like things get overlaid on top of like, you know, Santeria, you know, well, Santeria is like Christianity overlaid on their local beliefs and everything just kind of like an aggregate of many different things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I wanted to bring up uh, like at the end of this. But I think we covered like all the ground to like, I mean, like you said, pretty much everybody who's still here listening has seen this show at least once. You should go and watch it again right now and uh, give us your thoughts on our analysis of this. And then, yeah, if you're not registered to uh, to Patreon, yeah, it's only it's only a dollar a month if you want to hear the other episode. Yeah, that's that's the entry level. Dollar a month. That's it. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. All right, guys. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Take care.